We are not in the Gospel of Mark anymore. We've spent 56 weeks so far in the Gospel of Mark. We started it <clears throat> back in October of 2022, which is crazy to me. Um, but before we did move on to Daniel, I wanted to just give you an opportunity to clear up any anything left over from Mark that you might have, any last uh, thoughts or questions or anything before we jump on from there. I had meant to do that last week, but we didn't have time. We wrapped up quickly. No thoughts from Mark? We can put that in the rearview mirror and move on to Daniel, huh? All right. What's that? We are ready. All right. Well, we are moving on to Daniel, and today we're just going to cover a, an introduction to Daniel. Um, we're going to be picking up the pace a little bit from what we were doing going through Mark. Going through Mark, we'd do maybe 10 to 15 verses or so each week and try to get that covered. But through Daniel, we're going to be doing about a chapter a week. Um, I think there are a couple of weeks where we're going to do two weeks per chapter, chapters two and maybe nine or 11, a couple of the longer, deeper chapters. But for the most part, we're just going to be doing a chapter a week. So before we actually get into chapter one, like I said, I want to do a little bit of a, an introduction. And I want to start off with uh, why it is that we're picking Daniel. Why are we spending our time going through Daniel? Because we have 66 books in the Bible we could pick, right? And we're not relegated to a book in the Bible. We could pick different topics or themes or whatever. But I'm excited to be doing Daniel, and there are a few reasons why. First reason is that Daniel actually has a lot in common with Mark. We just got done, like I said, spending over a year going through Mark, 56 weeks, and there's quite a bit that Daniel has in common with that book that hopefully we're now more familiar with. Do you guys recall the, the key words in Mark? What are some of the key words that we had in our study in Mark? He did, over and over again, immediately, right? It's a, the quick-paced gospel. What are some other key words we saw in Mark? Servant. Yeah. That was his purpose, right? To write that he was a, a servant. He didn't come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. What else? There's one in particular I'm looking for that's pretty closely related to the book of Daniel. Yeah, good job. Kingdom of God. Mark talked a lot about the kingdom. He had uh, parables about the kingdom, and we spent quite a bit of time talking about the different aspects of the kingdom, the, the already not yet aspect, how in a spiritual sense, God has established his kingdom. Christ has established his kingdom. However, he's going to, in a physical sense, establish his kingdom in the future, after the tribulation, Prior to the new heavens, new earth, he's going to set up his kingdom. And Daniel uh, really lays out the groundwork for that whole understanding for that theology of the kingdom of God. <clears throat> and so um, several things we see, the, the kingdom of God, that's a common theme within Mark and Daniel. Things to come in chapter 13 of Mark, uh, we talked about the, the Olivet Discourse and the Jesus' teaching on the Great Tribulation 
and the the abomination of desolation, that all comes from the book of Daniel. And then this whole relationship between Jews and Gentiles, that's, we see a lot of that within the book of Daniel too. Daniel is writing to, to both Jews and Gentiles, and he's, again, laying the groundwork and talking about the different kingdoms that are going to be coming. Daniel is considered the backbone of biblical theology, or the, the key of biblical theology. And so... He has a, a lot to say. Again, just starting off the, the whole story of eschatological things, of future things, things to come. And it's really hard to understand uh, Zechariah or the Olivet Discourse in Mark 13 or in Matthew 24 or the book of Revelation if we don't have the, the bone structure of Daniel to hang all that, that meat and muscle on. And so Daniel, again, really is the backbone of biblical theology. Uh, Bruce Wilkinson, I don't know how true this is. I didn't fact check him. It seems like perhaps it could be a stretch. But he said that chapter 11 alone contains 100 specific prophecies of historical events that literally came true. Uh, To fit 100 in in one chapter seems like a lot to me. But there's a lot in chapter 11, too. And, (laughs) yeah, Jerry scoffs because... He knows it's true. Um, Yeah, so much important prophetic information within the book of Daniel. Daniel also gives us great insight into the character of God. We see God's sovereignty all throughout the book of Daniel. He he is in control of everything. Kings rising, kings falling, kingdoms coming into power and being taken over. We see his wrath in that same sense, his love, his mercy, his omnipotence, that he is all-powerful. His omniscience, he knows everything even before it takes place. And his covenant faithfulness to his people Israel. Uh, we see a lot of God and his character, his nature throughout the book of Daniel. And just like we've been talking about in our study through the life of David, we need to focus on Daniel's God and not so much on Daniel. We, we can't lose sight of God as we're looking at this person, this character of Daniel, and all these events that are taking place. Let's continue to focus on God throughout this whole study. And then Daniel also highlights our our spiritual warfare. He talks a lot about angels and demons and the, the battle between these angels and demons, especially in chapter 10, as we see Daniel praying, and he has to wait for three weeks because, uh, this angel's being caught up with this, uh, evil spiritual being and they're they're battling we see a lot of angels mentioned throughout this book and that of course is still pertinent and relevant to us today we're still in the midst of a spiritual battle and so this is not something that was just written you know hundreds of years ago 2600 years ago this is something that's relevant for us today and then it also gives us insight into a vital period of israel's history this is as we'll talk about later today and even into next week, um, Daniel takes place during the Babylonian captivity when Israel is taken off to Babylon. And were it not for Daniel, we wouldn't have these insights that we have into what took place in this particular period of time. And um, Daniel just gives a, he fills in what would otherwise be a gap. And Daniel is, it is absolutely my favorite Old Testament book. I'm excited to go through the book of Daniel, and so you guys 
get to go through it with me. Uh, I have some ESV journals that I ordered that are back ordered. They should have been here already that hopefully we'll get soon. We can use those to go through so that way I don't have to print up notes every week and you guys can follow along and keep notes in there. Um, I was hopeful that they would have been here today, but hopefully that will manifest and they'll be here and it'll be a good way for us to keep up. So speaking of this gap of history and how Daniel fills in that gap of the Babylonian captivity, I want to go back and look at the history leading up to Daniel a little bit. I know that we did this a couple of weeks ago when we were looking at King David in our sermon series, and so we won't spend a whole lot of time on that. We'll just kind of recap real quickly. Um, going back in the beginning of Israel's history, of course, we know that God had his promise to Abraham, or to Abram rather, in Genesis chapter 12, and he's going to fulfill that promise. He reiterates it in chapter 15, 17, 22, um, and not just to Abraham, but to Isaac and to Jacob, whose name is changed to Israel. Uh, from there, Israel has his 12 sons, right? The 12 tribes of Israel. We see 400 years lapse, and then Joseph and, um, well, Joseph, and then 400 years lapse in Egypt. And all the while, God is still or orchestrating, and he's still working amidst his people Israel, and uh, brings them up out of Egypt uh, through Moses. And then Moses spends 40 years in the wilderness, wandering around, hands it off to Joshua. Uh, from there we see judges take over, right? And they're leading God's people, and God's people are rebelling against the judges, they're doing whatever seems right in their own eyes. Um, in 1 Samuel chapter 8, we see that Israel demands a king because they're, they're tired of being separate, being set apart from all the other nations. They want to be like the other nations. They don't want to have a, a king who is invisible. They don't want to be led by the, the king of kings and lord of lords. They want to be like everybody else. And who are the, the first three kings of Israel? Saul, David, and Solomon, right? What about the fourth king of Israel after Saul, David, and Solomon? Rehoboam, all right. Yeah, that's where we see a, a split, right? Uh, Solomon uh, wanted to hand off his kingdom to his son, to Rehoboam. However, we see a, a split because his servant, Jeroboam, comes into the picture, and he actually takes half of the kingdom, even though Solomon didn't want him to. Solomon wanted him dead. Uh, but that's not the way that it worked because Israel was turning their back on God, and God was... Uh, faithful to his promise to uh, not let that continue, right? And so the United Kingdom of Israel under Saul, David, and Solomon lasted for a period of 120 years. So from 1051 to 931 BC, we see Israel being unified. It's one nation under God, right? Um, and their king, because they didn't want to be solely under God. They wanted to be under God and their human king. So these three men, Saul, David, Solomon, reigned for 120 years, and then we see a split. And so we'll look, first of all, at the history of Israel's northern kingdom. So the northern kingdom of Israel is called Israel. Um, in the north, we have Israel. In the south, we have Judah. So the northern kingdom of Israel was made up of 10 tribes, less Benjamin and Judah. They weren't 
part of Israel. They were part of Judah in the south. So in the north, you had the 10 remaining tribes. As I said, they were led by Jeroboam, who was not a descendant of Solomon, but rather he was Solomon's servant. And he kind of stepped in and took over the northern 10 tribes. And they went on to have 18 evil, wicked kings. None of the kings of the northern tribe of Israel were good or holy or righteous whatsoever. In the southern kingdom, it was a a mixed batch, but in Israel, they were consistently wicked. The capital city of the kingdom of Israel was Samaria, and this reign of the northern kingdom lasted longer than the 120 years of the United Kingdom of Israel, but it only lasted for 209 years before Assyria came in and took them captive in 722 BC. They came in and uh, defeated the northern kingdom. The southern kingdom of Babylon continued to go on for a number of years after that, but the northern kingdom only lasted for 209 years under these 18 evil kings, which began with Jeroboam. Any thoughts or questions on the northern kingdom? All right. Well, the southern kingdom then of Judah was made up of the two tribes, Benjamin and Judah, the two that weren't part of the northern kingdom. It was led by Rehoboam, again, who was Solomon's son, so the presumed heir had 11 evil kings and 8 holy kings. So kind of a a mixed bag, as I said. Some who would do well, and then their kid would come along and take the throne and not do so well. And God in his sovereignty would raise up another king who was holy and righteous despite his wicked father. And uh, this cycle continued. Just back and forth, good and evil. Uh, The capital of Judah was Jerusalem. This southern kingdom lasted longer than the northern of 209 for a total of 345 years, and they were eventually taken captive by Babylon, not in one quick sweep, but there were three different uh, separate captivities in 605, 597, and 586. Those are important dates to remember. Uh, Typically, 586 is the one that's highlighted because that's when Jerusalem was completely destroyed, the temple was destroyed, and they were... uh, pretty much entirely taken captive into Babylon. Um, But 605, that's an important date for our study because that's when Daniel and his friends are taken captive into Babylon during the the first sweep when Nebuchadnezzar comes in and takes them. Uh, 597, that's when Ezekiel and 10,000 other captives are taken into captivity. And then again, 586, that's the, the big one where they're pretty much done for for a while anyway. And we'll get into that a little bit more next week. Any other thoughts or questions on either the northern or southern kingdom and that whole split and all this history that's leading up to Daniel? Jerry. Yes. Good. That's a good, good thing to remember. All right. 
Well, one other reason for studying Daniel is because it happens to be one of the most challenged books in our Bible by a lot of liberal theologians, by a lot of atheists. People will say, Daniel doesn't belong in our Bible. Daniel is just a joke that was written after the fact, right? And so we should be able to be we should be able to give a defense for God's word and why Daniel is part of God's word. And Daniel has been under a lot of attack along with several other books, Genesis in particular, right? The first dozen or so chapters of Genesis have been attacked by our liberal society, the book of Revelation, which has its the, the backbone, right, within Daniel. And then uh, some of the small epistles, second, third John, stuff like that. But Daniel really has found itself uh, under fire by a lot of liberal theologians. They say that it is so precise in its prophetic uh, descriptions of what's going to take place that it had to have been written beforehand. There's no way that we can uh, trust what it says. What would you say? Oh, yes, it had to be written after these events took place. Yeah, thank you. And so... Uh, Let's look at the the author and the audience and the date of Daniel as we consider the fact that it has come under a lot of scrutiny. And so not only has Daniel been questioned and scrutinized for its content, for what it says, particularly about the future, uh, a lot of which is now passed to us, but even the authorship of Daniel has been questioned. Uh, A lot of this is because the book begins by speaking about Daniel in the third person. It's not Daniel speaking in the first person. So if you're not already in Daniel, open up your Bibles to the book of Daniel. And in Daniel chapter 1, let's see, I'll read in verse 6. It says, Now among them from the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So speaking about him in the third person, verse 8. But Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food. Uh, and it goes on, again, to speak about him in the third person. So as if Daniel isn't the one writing it. However, this isn't consistent. It changes halfway through the book. Daniel does speak about himself in the first person. And here's a, a list of those verses where we can see Daniel speaking about himself. Um, and let's look at that one. Can I get somebody to read? Daniel 8, 1 through 2 for us. Somebody go ahead and grab that whenever you get there. Daniel 8, 1 through 2. I got it. All right. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me. To me, Daniel, after the one that appeared to me the first time. I saw in the vision, and it so happened while I was looking, that I was in Shushan, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam, and I saw in the vision that I was by the river Eli. All right. So just in those first two verses, Daniel refers to himself in the first person nine times. I, me, Daniel, I, 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 myself, over and over again. And he continues to do that throughout the rest of the book. And so the fact that the first half of the book is written about Daniel in third person is no reason to assume that he didn't write it Uh, Some people have even gone so far as to say, well, there are two different authors of the book of Daniel. I think that's all hogwash. Uh, We can totally say, I think with confidence, that Daniel was the author of the book of Daniel. Um, Not only was he the author of the book of Daniel, but we get to know through 
the, the book that Daniel was well respected. He was highly esteemed is how the New American Standard translates that phrase three times within the book. It says that Daniel was a man who was highly esteemed. He was, in fact, yeah, I did put it in here. Nothing negative is said of Daniel in the Bible. He's one of few people within the Bible, especially uh, more prominent people in the Bible, that nothing negative is said about. Uh, we'll see several negative things said about David, right? His whole history with Bathsheba and Uriah, and he uh, took a census and numbered his people, and there were several things that David did that he shouldn't have done. David is highly regarded in Scripture, right? He's a man after God's own heart, but there's nothing negative that's said about Daniel, and uh, that just goes to show again that he was a man who was highly esteemed. Ezekiel talks about Daniel a few times in Ezekiel 14, 14, 14, 20, and 28, 3. And in those verses, he's comparing Daniel's righteousness with Noah and Job, saying there's no one as righteous as Daniel, Noah, or Job. And then he speaks of his wisdom also, and that's in that last passage in 28, 3. So Ezekiel, a contemporary of Daniel, speaks highly of Daniel. And that goes to, to show that he was the author, that he was a, a real man who lived beforehand. Ezekiel was written from 590 to 570, and nobody questions the dating of Ezekiel. And he affirms Daniel, so we shouldn't question Daniel's dating either. But all that really pales in comparison to the fact that Jesus affirmed Daniel as the author. And if we're not going to take Jesus' word, what are we even doing here, right? Uh, I think that's the, the greatest evidence for Daniel being uh, legitimate. And it says in Matthew twenty four fifteen, 15, uh, we went over this when we were going through Mark 13, but it says in Matthew twenty four fifteen, therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. And so... Jesus says, yeah, remember Daniel? Remember what he said about the abomination of desolation back in the book of Daniel, the book that he wrote, the book that he as a prophet wrote? Uh, Daniel wasn't even really considered a, a prophet uh, by the Jews. His, his book was in the writings section of Scripture rather than the prophetic section of Scripture. But remember, he was writing primarily to Gentile nations, um, and he wasn't so much prophesying to Israel, saying, this is what's going to take place with you. Uh, but Jesus absolutely affirms him, not only as having existed, but as a prophet who wrote the book of Daniel. All right, well, let's check out the audience. Whenever we're doing Bible study, we need to know, okay, well, who is writing this and who are they writing to? So trying to understand the audience of the book of Daniel. Um, really, this is... Uh, important because uh, one of the, the other reasons that Daniel's authorship is questioned is because of the, the language that the book of Daniel is written in. Uh, anyone know what's unique about the language of Daniel? So it is written in two languages, actually. It's written in uh, Hebrew for the first chapter, and then it switches to Aramaic, in 2.4 through 7.28, and then after chapter 7, it switches back to Hebrew, and the rest is written in Hebrew. And so that's a little bit unique. Yes, Joseph? Is there any other book in the Bible that has something in Aramaic, like 
There are, and it's our next slide. Good job. Uh, we also see this in Ezra, Ezra 4.8 through 6.18, and then from 7.12 to 26. Those are in Aramaic, and then one single verse in Jeremiah 10.11, also in an Aramaic. So that's interesting. Um, why do you suppose they would have written in Aramaic? Um, close. It's actually opposite. It's backwards. So Aramaic would have been the common language. And uh, remember, they moved. So when Daniel was growing up, he was learning Hebrew in, uh, in Israel. And then he was taken to Babylon. And Aramaic was the common language in Babylon. Um, just like the New Testament's written in Greek, it's not just any Greek. And it's not the high fluent like scholarly Greek, um, Hebrew and not Hebrew, uh, Hebrews and Luke are a little bit higher level of Greek, but it's written in Koine Greek. It's for the common man, the common Greek. And Aramaic was the common language that was used in Babylon because that's who the recipients were. It was the common people who would be reading this book within that region um, in Babylon. Um, his Daniel's contemporaries were Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Obadiah. They all ministered at the same time as Daniel. Uh, and then Ezra followed shortly after Daniel. Seventy years after being taken out, Ezra was the scribe, the priest, who was leading them back into the land and documents that in his book. And so if you look up and notice the other sections of scripture that are written in Aramaic. Ezra is one of them, and Jeremiah is one of them. And they were writing at the same time as Daniel in this same context of Babylonian captivity. And so they're all borrowing from the common language, using some of this Aramaic within their writings so they can be understood as they're speaking from God to the common people. Um, half of the book focuses on Israel and half on the Gentiles. So in chapter 1, that's focusing on Israel's history and on how Daniel was brought up out of the land. And uh, we'll get into that next week and look at how he refuses Nebuchadnezzar's diet. And then it switches. And just like the language switches in chapter 2 to chapter 7, the focus switches also on what God is going to do in and among the nations and who's going to come to power and who's going to fall. And then from chapter 8 onward, it's uh, going to pivot again and focus more on Israel and how the, the different nations that are going to come and rise to power are going to have an effect on Israel and Israel's future. And this book was written, again, by Daniel, a real dude, and it was written from the the nation of Babylon. And we see that in Daniel 12. Daniel 12.4 is where Daniel is told, while he's still in Babylon, to write down this message. And it says, But as for you, Daniel, conceal these words and seal up the book until the end of time. Many will go back and forth and knowledge will increase. This verse also... Oh, knowledge will increase. And so... Um, we see 
not only the fact that um, Daniel was writing this while he was in Babylon, but that his purpose in writing is the number one reason that critics questioned the book of Daniel because of its prophetic value, because it's speaking about what's going to happen. Again, uh, critics will say, no, he just wrote that after the fact, after all these nations rose to power and, and were defeated. He wasn't writing that beforehand. And so the date of Daniel is also under a lot of scrutiny. People will try to say, again, he wrote this afterwards. Uh, Daniel is incredibly precise in his dating. We'll see that all throughout. Um, only good Jewish girls and only vegetarian restaurants. No Chick-fil-A for Daniel's dates. Um, but, no, really. Um, he, he was very accurate in, in documenting um, who was reigning and the time of the recording, almost as if he's writing out journal entries. He's very particular to to mention that. So in Daniel 1.1, 1, 1, for instance, it says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. You see all the very specifics. In, in this year of this king's reign, this is what took place. And he does that throughout, making sure to, to mark and to document uh, his, his timing and his dating. And so when people are questioning the dating of Daniel, they're pretty much saying, no, he was just straight up lying. He was trying to deceive people in, in writing this. He was going back and reading the history books, and he was trying to place and say, well, this is when I'm writing, when really he was knowingly three or four centuries afterwards um, just lying to make himself look like a prophet when he really wasn't. And again, to question Daniel is to question Jesus. So to get the, the date of Daniel pinned down is kind of a, a big deal. But I think that we can confidently put Daniel's date at 536 to 530 B.C. If we're going to take Daniel at his words, like Jesus did, that's when Daniel would have written this book, when he was, uh, after he had gone through all these experiences, toward the end of his life, uh, he was now a, an old man, probably in his 90s, writing these things down. And again, we have to remember that Ezekiel mentioned Daniel three times, and nobody questioned Ezekiel's date of 590 to 570. Um, if, if we're not going to question Ezekiel's dating, we shouldn't question Daniel's dating just because of the content of Daniel. I think that's really why people are not excited about having Daniel being dated earlier because they just have a, a naturalistic outlook on the world. They have, these are the same people who will say that Jesus didn't really perform these miracles, right? There are naturalistic understandings for why Jesus did what he did. That when Moses split the Red Sea, he didn't really split the Red Sea. There was some kind of uh, storm that came in and just blew the water over and they walked across on a land bridge. It wasn't fully dry. It was kind of wet and soppy. And uh, these are not people who understand that God works in miraculous ways. I have this quote here from John Walbert, who is a good commentator. Um, he says, except for the attack of the pagan Porphyry in the third century AD, no question was raised concerning the traditional sixth century BC date. 
the authorship of Daniel the prophet or the genuineness of the book until the rise of higher criticism in the 17th century, more than 2,000 years after the book was written. So again, his prophecies were so precise and reliable that people say that that had to have been written after the fact. Um, and this guy I mentioned here, uh, Porphyrer, uh, he was, as Walverd mentions, a, a pagan. He was not a believer. He didn't pretend to be a believer. He was an atheist who attacked not only biblical truth, but other works of religious literature. He was a, a critic, a, a critic back in the third century. And he gave Daniel a date of 165 BC, which is really, really late. Um, it's even a late date for the, the Septuagint, which is the um, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which we think was like the third to the second century. Remember, we're working backwards when we're BC, so working up to zero. And uh, the, the Septuagint was probably around before 165 BC, which had Daniel in it. Uh, Daniel is found in the, the Dead Sea Scrolls in the Qumran Caves, and that puts Daniel earlier in this because it had to have been around prior to that. And this dude, Porphyrer, he had no idea about that. He, again, was just a critic. But Walverd says, aside from him, this outlier who's just out to destroy the Bible, this God-hater, there's no question about Daniel until the 17th century when people started to really be critical. This, this higher criticism kind of comes on the scene. Um, he says prior to that, there was no reason to, to question Daniel at all. It was accepted by the Jews. The book of Daniel is accepted by the Jews back then. Again, accepted by Ezekiel, accepted by Jesus himself. It wasn't questioned until relatively recently. And all of that really comes about by people's preconceived ideas, right? They're, they're jumping into this pursuit of figuring out when Daniel was written with predetermined conclusions. They already have this confirmation bias going on. They don't want it to be true. They already know that there's no such thing as a miracle. God, if there is a God, only works naturally, right? He can't work supernaturally. And when you enter into any conversation or any uh, exploration with these preconceived ideas, it's going to change and affect your, your outcomes, right? And that's all that Walverd is saying. So when I was putting this slide up. I wasn't sure how this would read. Is that hard to read? The white on gold there? I have a visual test for you. Is that easier or is that easier to read? Easier. Number two. All right. We're, we're going to do an eye exam. So number, number one or number two or number three. Ooh. What do we think? One, two, or three? Two. I got two. One, Two, three, mostly twos. We're getting a lot of twos. All right, good to know. <laughs> Number two. All right, any thoughts or questions on the author, audience, or date of Daniel? It really is unfortunate that we have to go over this because it should just be assumed, right? But it's good to not just assume. Yeah, but. We're supposed yes. to let God with our mind. Yes. Yeah, we're not supposed to assume entirely, but I just mean the fact that there are critics out there who are so negative, especially toward Daniel, because they have these preconceived ideas. 
Um, but yeah, First Peter 3.15, we need to be prepared to give a defense for the hope that we have, right? Jim. The, oh. the dates you gave us, 536, 530, is that the beginning of Daniel's writings, or is that the complete time frame? No, that's when it would have been written. So it covers back before that. So 605 is when you could put a, a date in your Bible next to Daniel 1.1 at 605, because that's when uh, the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim was when Nebuchadnezzar came in and besieged Jerusalem. And then from there, you have 70 years, right? Daniel's famous for having these 70 years in Babylon. Um, you see that in Ezekiel 39, right? Um, is it 39 or is it 29? 29. No, that's when it would have been written. Yeah, somewhere in there. So uh, 536 was 70 years after the captivity. And yeah, give a, a six-year buffer for how long Daniel could have lived in and continue to write what took place in Daniel. Jerry, were you going to say something? Well, you, did you say the Dead Sea Scrolls are kind of the strongest archaeological evidence of its earlier date? Because that was, those were edited when? Uh, they date back to second century, I think. And yeah, if they would have been compiled already in there, then they would have had to circulate before. Those we didn't discover until the 20th century? Yeah. yeah. Do you know when it was? I think it was a year before Israel. Oh, okay. I thought it was, yeah, you're probably right. But yeah, 20th century. Uh-huh. So, like, is there a year that we would say they date back to? Yeah, that's what Jerry was just asking, I think. So, 2nd century B.C. So, 2nd so century would be 200 A.D.? 200 to 100. B.C. 200 B.C., yeah, so before Jesus. And, yeah, again, the Septuagint also we had before then. And I think most people will date that between 3rd to 2nd century. So, yeah, from... Uh, 300 to 200. So it's always Our, been deliberate ignorance for people to say that. Yeah. Yep. And, and you're saying that's when the Dead Sea Scrolls were written? Yes. Because they had a complete copy of Isaiah. Mm-hmm. Copies from almost complete books from other. Yep. And, and Daniel was part of that discovery. And so, yeah, it's just one reason that we can date them back. Um, but yeah, that's just archaeological evidence. I think the greatest evidence we have is the fact that Jesus, our Lord, was quoting Daniel. He looked at him as being legitimate and said, and look at what Daniel, the prophet, said about the abomination of desolation. Um, yeah, I think these, these critics really start with this confirmation bias, and that's why they end where they end, because they have these presuppositions that God is untrustworthy, the Bible isn't true, no such thing as miracles, therefore Daniel had to have been a fraud. He couldn't have been prophesying. Um, and if we have a 
a presupposition of the fact that there is a God, that he is true, that he does know the end from the beginning, and that he uses his prophets to communicate that to his people, then we should have no problem with God speaking to Daniel and telling him ahead of, fact, ahead of time the facts that we're going to unfold in history. Um, it, it really all starts with where we start, and that's going to affect where we end up. Other thoughts or questions? Yeah, because uh, Daniel is so specific. He gets in, he says that Babylon is going to be the ruling empire, and then after Babylon is going to be the Medes and the Persians. After the Medes and Persians is going to be the Greeks, and then the Romans. And it's like, dude, that's very specific. That's very accurate to history. It's almost as if he was taking a history book and reading out of the history book and like transposing it into a, a biblical text, trying to pretend like it was prophecy when it really wasn't. Um, it, it all starts with their bias against God, against the Bible. All right. Well, let's look at some themes, at the purpose and theme of Daniel. We've already covered this a little bit, but just to kind of boil it down some. Uh, one is to testify of God's mighty power and divine sovereignty and to encourage the Jews in the midst of tragic despair. And so remember that when Daniel is writing this, Israel has just been defeated. Um, not entirely, because it was, at, at first it was 605, but by the time that he's writing this, Israel had been defeated, right? And many were taken into exile, and Daniel was an example of godly living in the midst of a sinful land. We'll really get into that and look at that next week when he's refusing Nebuchadnezzar's diet. He's saying, no, I'm not going to do that because... My God has told me not to do that. And Daniel is in this role as a prophet to, to stand up and to show his people, this is how you ought to live. This is the way that you ought to go. Even when they were being um, just tempted to, to despair, right? Um, and we need to, once again, realize Daniel is an awesome guy, but focus on Daniel's God rather than on Daniel throughout this book because it is his mighty power and his divine sovereignty that is ultimately on display. And Daniel is just the, the conduit that God uses to, to put that on display. We also see that the purpose of this book is to outline the future history of the Gentile nations and to reiterate the fulfillment of God's covenant with Israel. Um, particularly in chapter 2. That's where we see that list. In, in chapters 2 and 7, we see uh, this prophecy about Babylon and the Medes and Persians and the Greeks and the Romans and how they're going to rise to power and uh, fall again. Um, and ultimately how God's, it's God's kingdom that is going to be established that will not fail. That's going back to what we were talking about, the connection between Mark and Daniel. God's kingdom is one that is going to uh, be established. This rock that is cut without hands, it's going to destroy all these other kingdoms and be established and it's going to be established forever. Um, man has had repeated attempts at, at ruling the world apart from God, at building their own kingdoms. We see this all throughout the Bible, starting all the way back in Genesis with the Tower of Babel, right? They want to build up their own kingdom, 
and, and it doesn't work. We see this with each one of these Gentile kingdoms that are mentioned in Daniel, and they, they fall to another worldly empire. But God's kingdom is going to be established forever. Uh, the fact that his kingdom is eternal, that's mentioned seven times throughout the book of Daniel, that he has an eternal kingdom, primarily in chapters 2 and chapter 7. Um, but just as we were talking about how the Davidic covenant is an eternal forever covenant, how the Abrahamic covenant is an eternal forever covenant. Um, Daniel focuses on that fact that God's kingdom will be forever. It will be established and nobody's going to be able to destroy it again after that. Um, the focus will shift from Israel to the nations and then back to Israel again, just like we mentioned from two to seven. Those chapters are focused on the nations um, and all this, of course, is done in a prophetic sense prior to the events taking place, which is why Daniel is known as the, the backbone of prophecy. Um, we'll see that God isn't just the God of the Jews, but he's the God of the Gentiles also. He's in control over the Gentiles. He has sovereign uh, ownership and control over the Gentiles and the Gentile nations. Uh, he will ultimately judge everyone in righteousness. That's what... Daniel's name means, by the way, God is my judge. And we see that demonstrated throughout this book, that God is not just the judge of Daniel, but God is the judge of Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon and Medes and Persians and all these different nations. God is um, taking the, the heart of the king and moving it around like rivers of water, wherever he wills. Uh, key verses in the book of Daniel are 4.17 220 through 22 and 244. These are verses that focus on this same purpose, this same theme throughout Daniel, that God is the one who's in control, even over kings, even over nations. God is working his sovereign will to his pleasure. So let's go ahead and look at those verses. First verse is Daniel 4:17. And it says, this sentence is by the decree of the angelic watchers and the decision is a command of the holy ones. Now, get this, this is the part I want us to focus on. In order that the living may know that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whom he wishes and sets over it the lowliest of men. So, in order that the living may know. So, everybody, right? Not just that the Jews may know, not just that... Uh, Nebuchadnezzar or Babylon may know, but no, that the living may know that God is, first of all, he's the most high God, and uh, he's the one who establishes rule over the realm of mankind. Again, not just over one particular realm or one particular nation, all of mankind, God has rule and dominion and ownership over, and yet he takes and, and mediates that ownership. He bestows that on whoever he wishes even the lowliest of men, God will raise them up to accomplish his work, to perform his goodwill. In Daniel 2:20 20 through 22, Daniel said, let the name of God be blessed forever and ever for wisdom and power belong to him. It is he who changes the times and the epics. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. It is he who reveals the profound and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. Again, we need to focus on God. God is the one who is high and set apart. God is the one calling the shots. And all these other kings, all these other nations, even though they think they're in charge, even though they think they're, they're hot shots, they're just going to end up chewing the grass, like, 
like we see Nebuchadnezzar doing in chapter 4. God is establishing his sovereignty over these kings. His sovereignty has been established, and he is um, showing that fact to, uh, to the world, to all mankind, to all the living, through the prophecy of Daniel. In Daniel 2.44, it says, In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. So again, we see the, the prophetic aspect of this verse, that God is looking even beyond the earthly worldly kingdoms, that he is going to establish his kingdom, which we learn later in Revelation 20 is a 1,000-year kingdom, the millennial reign of Christ, where he will literally physically reign on this earth with his people, and that kingdom will be established forever, never to end again. Thoughts or questions on purpose or theme of Daniel or those key verses? Joseph. On an earlier slide, I think it was mentioning like the reference of Daniel um, talking about like the future of um, the Gentile nations and then the, the promise with Israel. Yeah. So like when it mentioned the future Gentile nations, yeah. what do you think that Samaria, Samarita would be with that? Uh, like no, we'll, we'll look at that uh, in a little bit. Well, yeah, I was thinking Assyria, not Samaria. Um, yeah, they're they're not in view within Daniel, but their God's sovereignty uh, extends over them as well, over every nation. Even though America isn't mentioned, in Daniel, God is sovereign over America. And uh, when we get into chapters two and chapter seven, we will look at not just the the Roman Empire, but the the future revived Roman Empire, uh, the feet that are made out of a mixture of iron and clay and how that's going to be established and destroyed by God and he's going to establish his kingdom even in light of that revived Roman Empire. Were you going to say something, Jerry? Yeah. Yep. And I think the fact that it is under such scrutiny and such attack is evidence of the fact that it is so compelling. The the very idea that people want to cut Daniel out of their Bibles and they want to say and discredit it and say it's not trustworthy. Uh, that's a, a testament to how uh, just how specific and how true it is. The it was um, so detailed. Again. Uh, Wilkinson saying that there are just in just chapter 11 there are a hundred historical prophecies that were literally fulfilled were fulfilled in a literal sense uh, Daniel is a, an incredible book alright well let's look at the, the outline of Daniel that's all we'll have for today I adapted this outline from Brooke Wilkinson and his um, outline with walk through the Bible and so here, here we'll see three different sections of Daniel. Chapter 1 being the first section, then chapters 2 through 7, and then finally chapters 8 through 12. And that first chapter, which we'll look at next week in its entirety, and hopefully move on to chapter 2 after that, it talks about a history of Daniel, just how 
Daniel got from Jerusalem to Babylon, and we see his background, and that is written in Hebrew. Notice that the languages follow the, the outline of the book. That's large part why the, the outline is the way that it is, because of the languages, but not just the languages, because of the, the focus as well. Remember, we talked about how it kind of shifts focus from Israel to the Gentile nations and back to Israel. And so chapters 2 through 7 uh, focus on the prophetic plan for the Gentiles, whereas chapters 8 through 12 focus on the prophetic plan of Israel. And it's interesting, I've never made this connection until I looked at Wilkinson's outline here that chapters 2 through 7 are documenting Daniel interpreting others' dreams, which we know, right, we're familiar with that, interpreting Nebuchadnezzar's dream and um, the the cupbearer and the baker interpreting their dreams, right, in Daniel chapter, is that chapter, I don't know what chapter that is. Um, that's not even Daniel. That, <laughs> that's Joseph. I'm getting my, my Bible characters mixed up. <laughs> um, but yeah, Daniel in, interpreting others' dreams in 2 through 7. But then in chapters 8 through 12, it's an angel interpreting Daniel's dreams. And Daniel saying that he's having these dreams and he's just not able to sleep and he's restless and he doesn't know what they mean. And we have angels coming and interpreting that for Daniel in those chapters. Any thoughts or questions on that outline? I know you guys are finishing up, jotting some of that down. I think it's interesting, again, how the, the purpose of Daniel, the, the audience of Daniel, matches up with the, the language that Daniel's written. And that, that seems so practical to us, right? That if you're writing to a certain group of people who speak a different language, you'll write in that language. Um, but, yeah, I just think it's... It's interesting. It's, it's cool how that matches up. And people have, one of the reasons that people have criticized Daniel is because it's written in two different languages. And they'll say, well, Aramaic, that's an, an older language, or not an older language. It's like, it, it's newer, I guess, but it came along later in history. And so that's one of the reasons they question it. But again, they never question Ezekiel, never question Jeremiah, or Ezra, rather, or Jeremiah for using Aramaic in their writings. All right. Well, that's the outline we will operate from. And if you guys need to get more of that, I can get that for you here in a moment. I also wanted to give you my chapter headings that I have written out for Daniel. I know I did that in Mark and told you that um, I like to try to associate a, a chapter of the Bible with a, a short phrase that just helps me to try to remember where things are at, just like we do with, um, let's see, what's a good example? First Corinthians um, 11, we have the, the head coverings and the communion, right? First uh, Corinthians 13 is the love chapter. Uh, Hebrews 11 is the chapter of faith, the hall of faith. And so my chapter headings, I'll give you those for Daniel. Uh, chapter 1, we see that Daniel refuses Nebuchadnezzar's diet. Um, chapter 2 is about Nebuchadnezzar's statue dream. These are kind of squished on there. Sorry about that. Chapter 3, the fiery furnace with Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And then the fourth, who is like a son of man, right? We see a, a glimpse of Jesus in that chapter. Chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar humbled. That's where he's eating grass like an animal out on the field. 
Chapter 5, Belshazzar and the Writing Hand. Chapter 6, Darius, Daniel, and the Lions. Chapter 7, we see the four beasts representing those four kingdoms in connection with uh, Nebuchadnezzar's statue dream back in chapter 2. Chapter 8, we see the ram and the goat. Chapter 9, 70 weeks. I'm talking about the, uh, the tribulation period. We looked at that when we were going through Mark 13. Chapter 10, we see three weeks of spiritual warfare. Chapter 11, the abomination of desolation. Talking about the Antichrist and him destroying the holiness little temple. And chapter 12, the great tribulation, those final three and a half years of the tribulation period that is yet to come within Daniel's 70th week. Uh, so you don't have to write those down, but I find them helpful. And if you want to take and amend those, you can do that. What's up, Kilo? Um, Belteshazzar, right? Which sounds a lot like Belshazzar, so it always mixes me up. But yeah, his Babylonian name is Belteshazzar. And we'll talk about that a little bit next week when we look at chapter 1 and how they were taken and given these Babylonian names, which is part of the reason that I prefer to refer to Daniel's three friends as Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Those are their Hebrew names that glorify the God of Israel, whereas the other three names, um, oh, what are they? <laughs> yeah, they're named after the Babylonian gods. Um, it's not Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. It's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, those are their more common popular names. But and, and the Bible does use those names, but they are intended to give honor to a a Babylonian fake god rather than to the true living God of Israel. All right, any closing thoughts or questions? All right, I'm excited to get into Daniel with you guys and we'll be back next week. Let's pray. God, thank you for Daniel, that he was a, a real man who lived in, in history. And God, I thank you for the fact that you affirmed him, that we can know that this is... Uh, not just past history, but future history as well. And pray that you would speak to us as we go through this book, that you would be high and lifted up in our minds. We would see the fact that you are in control, that you are sovereign over all the nations, that you will uh, continue to uh, keep the covenant promise that you made to your people, Israel. God, we serve a, a living and a true God who is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, uh, forever, God. We are so blessed to, to serve you, to know you, to have your word, to have each other, to have your Holy Spirit. God bless us as we continue to focus on you today. God, we love you and praise you. Amen.